Kali Gibram once said, generosity is not giving me that which I need more than you do, but it is giving me that which you need more than I do. Today we gather um, this first Sunday after Easter to celebrate um, together the resurrection of Jesus from the tomb. We celebrate the greatest gift of love the world has ever seen. We give our praises, we give our worship, we give our hearts, not because God needs them more than we do. Instead, we give those things to God because we need to give them more than God needs them. That's why we're here. That's why we gather. That's why we worship. Let's take a moment to center ourselves in prayer. Let's pray together. Holy God, as we enter this time of worship, we set aside the baggage that we carried in through the doors with us this morning. As we focus our attention on our purpose for being here, let our minds remain centered on your son, Jesus. Let your breath of life fill this place as we sing to you. It's in the name of Jesus, your son and our savior that we pray, amen. Today, we continue our teaching series titled Paradise Lost, Paradise Restored. And over the last four weeks, we've been looking at the many references to gardens throughout the Bible and their importance in God's story of restoring the promised land and restoring creation. And today we're going to turn our attention beyond the, the location of the promised land and move toward the idea and the ideal of the promised land. I want to say that again, the idea and the ideal of the promised land. And we're going to look at the call of a man named Abram and God's purpose of the promised land. And we'll discover that the blessings that we receive in this life are given with the intent of blessing others. But most importantly this morning, our focus today will center on one reality, one fact, one primary principle, and that is that everything is God's. Everything is God's, and we are simply managers of God's abundance in this life. A couple of weeks ago, I was at Meyer in the checkout line, and there was a woman in front of me checking out with two small children, and... Um, she looked a little frazzled in the store. Um, her six-year-old-ish son uh, reached into the candy um, basket things tray there and grabbed a pack of M&Ms and, and began begging his mom for the candy. And the mother, who was a little bit frazzled, um, said that the boy could have the candy if he shared it with his little sister. And the boy smiled, this big, bright smile, having achieved his master plan. As a mom paid for the groceries, the little boy reached up on the little counter shelf thing and grabbed the M&Ms and went over to the side of the cart and stood on the side of the cart and opened the M&Ms and began eating them in front of his little sister, who within like a quarter of a second began screaming for her share of the M&Ms. You've been there. You've seen this. Maybe you were in Meyer with me that day, but maybe not, but maybe it was a different mom. But anyways started screaming for her share of the M&M's. And the little boy declared with all authority, you can't have any, they're mine. 
The, the tired and frustrated mother um, pushed her shopping cart toward the exit, and I heard her as she was walking away, and as, as I, standing alone without my children, smiled inwardly to myself. Um, um, I heard her start to rationalize with her six-year-old. Um, I've tried that with my five-year-old, but she started rationalizing with her, her, her son, and as they got closer to the door, I heard the boy scream at the top of his lungs, no, they're mine, 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 and, and they left. Um, I understand the, where the mother was. I've been there. I think all of us have been there. Um, whether we have kids or not, we've, we've been around kids. We understand that moment. Um, I think we've all been where I have been, um, standing in line around other parents with kids and witnessing that. I also understand where that six-year-old boy has been as well. Because I have had the same problem in my life. Not, not with M&Ms per se. Um, well, maybe with M&Ms, but not more in a general sense. In a general sense in my life, when, when I get something, whether, it's been, whether I've worked for it or it's been given to me, uh, I take ownership of it. And, and I feel like I'm responsible for it. And it can be a challenge for me to, to share something that I view is mine. Case in point, when I received a text message yesterday from a very close friend of mine who asked if they could borrow my brand new leaf blower. Brand new leaf blower. Of course you can borrow my brand new leaf blower. Of course you can. Two things stand in opposition. And there's a fine line in between. And it's an opposition, I think, that we all carry. And it's evident that we all struggle with these two imposing values. And it is genuinely, is it genuinely ours to do with what we will? Or are we caretakers of something that belongs to someone else? And when we really start to dig deep, we really go deep. Is it ours or is it God's as people of faith? We all wrestle with this tension in our lives at some point or another. We all do. How do we handle the blessings that we receive? What do we do with a tax return if we get a tax return? What, what do we do with the birthday gifts, the unexpected check that comes in the mail? What do we do when the neighbor unexpectedly mows our lawn or blows the snow during the winter when we don't expect them to, or shows up with dinner? Is the blessing ours to do with what we will, or is it God's? What about the expected blessings? Because not all blessings are unexpected. What about the things that we expect in our lives? We receive blessings in many forms. What about the blessing of a paycheck? Retirement, a pension, an annuity, an alternate income source. We, if we worked for it, doesn't it belong to us? Isn't it ours? Why would we say it belongs to God? And therein lies the tension. 
that we face in life. Is it ours or is it God's? Are we owners or are we managers? And here's the point for the day. As I said already, everything is God's. Everything is God's. Say that with me now. Everything is God's. Oh, that was weak. Everything is God's. Okay, extroverts, raise your hand. We have more extroverts. Raise your hand. Okay, extroverts, turn to all the introverts and tell them everything is God's. Introverts, cower in fear. Everything is God's. If, if we can learn to live into this truth, this one truth that everything is God's, then we will be on our way to experiencing a way of life that, that is beyond all measure. It's, it's one filled with the richness of God's abundance, and it is a life lived through generosity. But to get there, we must first come to terms with the reality of the idea and the ideal of the promised land. You see, we've talked for the last four weeks, last three weeks, about the promised land that was lost in Eden and will be restored. And we've talked about this location, but it's not meant just to be a physical location. The promised land that we long for in this life is, in fact, a way of life. Today, we're going to explore what that life looks like and how we get there together. And it begins by first recognizing that everything is God's. And to begin our journey toward the promised land this morning, we're going to go to the book of Genesis again, to where God calls a man named Abram to leave his home and go to a new land. And so I invite you to hear this account of the calling of Abram from Genesis chapter 12, where it says, The Lord had said to Abram, Leave your native country, your relatives, and your father's family, and go to the land that I will show you. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you and make you famous, and you will be a blessing to others. I will bless those who bless you and curse those who treat you with contempt. All the families on earth will be blessed through you. So Abram departed as the Lord had instructed, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he left Haran. 75, folks, not 25. He took his wife Sarai, his nephew Lot, and all his wealth, his livestock, and all the people that he had in his household, household at Haran, and headed for the land of Canaan. The land where God sent Abram was a garden. In Genesis 13.10, we find it described like this. Lot took a long look at the fertile plains of the, of the Jordan Valley in the direction of Zoran. The whole area was well watered everywhere like a garden of the Lord or the beautiful land of Egypt. You see, the promised land was to be a beautiful blessing to God's people in the world. And for Abram and his family, the promised land was a specific location. It was a place Later on, during the Exodus, the story of Moses and the people of, of the Israelites, the people of Israel, they journeyed to the promised land, right? They, they went to the promised land. So once again, it was a particular location that they were traveling to. But if we go back to this account of Abram and we look back to the text, God's intent 
of the physical place involved the blessing that it would provide. Listen to the words. The promised land was to be a, a beautiful blessing to God's people in the world. You see, the place had a purpose. The place had a purpose, and the purpose was the blessing. And the blessing came in the form of the fertility of the land, the garden soil of the promised land. And that soil gave Abram the blessing, which he, in turn, was able to use to bless other people. However, the location of the promised land isn't nearly as important as the way of life that God intended we experience as we walk with him. See, the promised land was to be a place where the love of God and love of others dominated our way of life, dominated people's way of life. That was the intent of the promised land. It was a lush garden, a fruitful place, but it was intended to be more than a physical site. It was intended to be more than a sacred space. You see, God sent Abram to the location so that he and his family could live their lives with God in the way that God intended. And interestingly enough, when you read more of the story, Scripture shows us that if someone does enter the promised land, but then chooses not to embrace the life that God intends, they get kicked out of the promised land. That's what happened to Adam and Eve. They lived in the garden, but refused to live the way that God called them to live. And what happened to them? This is also what happened to Moses, or the people, that, the people of Israel that Moses led to the promised land. They entered the promised land, crossed the Jordan River, but they refused to live as God called them to live. They wanted the place. They wanted to live in paradise. They wanted the blessing They wanted to farm the fertile soil, but they refused to live the life that God intended them to live. And so the nation of Israel was defeated and taken into exile by the Babylonians. And while in exile, they longed, they longed for God's garden. They longed for it. I invite you to listen to what the prophet Isaiah wrote about that longing. The Lord will comfort Israel again and have pity on her ruins. Her desert will blossom like Eden, her barren wilderness like the garden of the Lord. Joy and gladness will be found here. Songs of thanksgiving will fill the air. Listen to me, my people. Hear me, Israel, for my law will be proclaimed and my justice will become a light to the nations. My mercy and justice are coming soon. My salvation is on the way. My strong arm will bring justice to the nations. All distant lands will look to me and wait and hope for my powerful arm. See, Isaiah is talking about the restoration of Eden but he's not talking about a physical place. He's not talking about a physical location. He's describing a way of life. He's saying that the promised land is a place filled with joy 
with gladness. The promised land is a place filled with thanksgiving. The promised land is the idea that God's garden is more than something we can see. It's a way of life beyond our hopes. The promised land is the ideal that God's garden is a life that we are called to live and a kingdom that we are charged to build. It's a place of justice, a place of righteousness, and a place of salvation. The promised land is a life, is the life that we long for, the life that we long for in our lives to live. And that life may look differently for all of us. And it often does. For, for one person, that longing for the promise, that life that we long for in the world might be a, a longing where all children are loved and cared for. That holy discontent, as Bill Hybels would say. For another, it might be a focus on racial reconciliation. Or it might be economic justice. For another, that holy discontent, that longing for that life that God has for God's garden, for that promised land, might be a place where families remain unbroken or where God continually draws all people to God's self. And while we might long for all of these things to happen, and most of us do, in each of us, there is a dream of what life is meant to be. We were created to live in relationship with God in the king's garden, which means that within us all, there is a longing to experience the fullness of life with God. And this is the life and the way that God intended us to live. I wonder what that longing is in your life. Because every time we lift up a vision of what God has called us to be and do, we're moving the needle toward the promised land. Every time we pray for and work for the world to become a more beautiful place, we are moving the needle toward the promised land. Every time we dream big dreams about how this community can, better, can be better and plan how to make things happen, we are moving the needle to the promised land. Every time we give generously to help those in need or provide for our church to be in ministry to the people around us, we are moving the needle toward the promised land. Every time we support a missions team or provide a scholarship to send a kid to church camp, we're moving the needle toward the promised land. You see, the promised land calls out to us. We long for it, to experience its beauty, but, but it's a dream right? It is a dream. And the reality is that we need to go out into the world and actually work to see it accomplished. We must work to see the needle move. God said to Abram, I will bless you and you will be a blessing to others. We need to hear God's words, and take God's words to heart, but we need to personalize them in our lives as well. We are blessed to be a blessing. 
I am blessed to be a blessing to others. I, me, myself, I am blessed to be a blessing. When I learn to give away a significant portion of what God has given me, I am able to move the needle closer to the promised land. When we are able to give away a significant portion of what God has given us, we are able to move the needle closer to the promised land, and we can feel that movement, and nothing feels quite the same. Nothing quite feels like it. And now, I know that it's hard. Aaron and I do not always agree on our giving. Oftentimes, one of us wants to give more than the other, and I won't tell you who. Sometimes we argue about it. But what we both agree on wholeheartedly is that we have been blessed and that the purpose of our blessing is to bless other people. What we argue about is not the fact that we give. What we argue about is the method in which we give. We are blessed to be a blessing. And when we understand whose abundance we're responsible for, it helps clarify it. So let me, let me give you another illustration, another story to help illustrate that ownership principle. Um, a father and a son went to a baseball game. That's the one with the stick and the ball. The son asks the father if he can go to the concession stand. The dad hands the son some money. The boy goes off, comes back a few minutes later with a pack of Skittles. Sits down next to his dad and opens the Skittles and begins eating as they're watching the game. Dad looks over and says, ooh, wild berry. It's mm, my favorite. Can I have a few? Without a second thought, the boy replies, no. What? The father asks. Why not? To which the boy replies, they're mine. Here's the point. The boy thought the Skittles were his because he bought them with the money that he handed the concession stand. When in reality, the money had come from his father. Him even being at the game came from his father. Him even being alive came from his father. God owns everything, whether we call it ours or not. He owns it all. Look at what David said in Psalm 24. He said, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. The world and all its people belong to him, for he laid the earth's foundation on the seas and built it on the ocean depths. I like how the Old Testament prophet Haggai narrows down the focus a little bit when talking about wealth. He says, the silver is mine. And the gold is mine, says the Lord of the heaven's armies. Paul says that God not only owns all the wealth in the world, but that God also owns us. And in 1 Corinthians 6, he says, Don't you realize that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who lives in you and was given to you by God? You see, the Bible is very clear. God is the owner of everything, and we are the managers. Everything I have today, everything I have today comes from God. It's all his. 
I own none of it. Psalm 89 says, The heavens are yours. The earth is yours. Everything in the world is yours. You created it all. We are not the owners of anything. We are not the owners of anything. We are stewards, managers of God's assets. And here's the thing. If I believe, hear, hear this, if, if I believe that I am the owner, then I will be in constant conflict with God over what I do with the things that I have. If I believe I'm the owner, I will be in constant conflict with God over, the, over what I do with the things that I have. It would be like taking money from someone who gives me money for a specific purpose, like to buy groceries, but then I take it and I go do whatever I want with it. Constant conflict. Because there was an intent and a purpose that I didn't live out. But by understanding that God is the owner and that I am the manager of his assets, the conflict disappears and, and freedom takes over. The question is not, what should I give or what should I do with the money? Instead, it's, what can I do? with God's assets. How about this? Here's a good one. Let's say, math question, let's say you made $400 last week. Okay. How much of it belongs to God? Now, some might say a tithe, 10%. Uh, so 10%, uh, 400, carry the three, divided by nine, and the square root of a cat. Um, that would be $40, right? No, it's a trick question. It's a trick question. The biblical principle of tithing does not mean 10% is God's and the rest is yours. It all belongs to God. That's the point. Everything is God's. All $400 is God's. $400 is God's. None of it is yours. All that we are, all that we have, is God's. The biblical principle of tithing says to give your first fruits back 10%. Give back 10%. That's the tithing thing. But all of it is God's. Not 10%. Look at what Paul's question, how, what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 4. He says, For what gives you the right to make such a judgment? What do you have that God hasn't given you? And if everything you have is from God, why boast as though it were not a gift? Nothing, nothing, and I shouldn't. Deuteronomy 8 cautions, he did all of this so you would never say to yourself, I have achieved this wealth on my own strength and energy. Remember the Lord your God, he is the one who gives you the power to be successful in order to give in order to fulfill the covenant he confirmed in you, your ancestors, with an oath. You see, we are, we are managers. And we have a responsibility to God. And if God is the owner and we are the managers, then he has entrusted us with his property. And we must learn to think like managers. Managers oversee the owner's assets for, their, for, the, manager, or for the owner's benefit, not for their own. And there's no sense of entitlement Manager's job is to know what the owner wants done and then to do it. So this understanding affects us three ways this morning. Three things to learn from this. First, we learn to give abundantly. King David understood the owner-manager relationship. And in 1 Chronicles, after 
King David received just a massive offering. Um, First Chronicles records this saying of King David. He says, but who am I and who are my people that we could give anything to you? Everything we have came from you and we give you only what you first gave us. David thought like a manager, a steward of God's assets, not as an owner. In the, book of the tre- in the book called The Treasury Principle, the author Randy Elkhorn shares about a man named um, Jerry Caven, excuse me, and Jerry was a, uh, is a successful businessman. I would call him a very well- wealthy biz- businessman. Um, in the book, it says he says he owned a restaurant chain, he owned two banks, he owned a ranch and a farm and many real estate ventures. And when Jerry was 59 years old, uh, he started searching for a lakeside retirement home. Pretty awesome. But God had other plans. And Jerry said in the book, and I quote, God led led us to put our money and time overseas. It's been exciting. Before we gave token amounts, but now we put substantial money into missions. We often go and spend time serving in India. And when Jerry was asked what changed his attitude toward giving, he quickly answered, and I quote, once we understood that we were giving away God's money to do God's work, we discovered a peace and joy we never had back when we thought it was our money, end quote. Second, we give sacrificially. In 2 Corinthians 5, Paul tells the readers about the Macedonian Christians and their need to give sacrificially. And this is what he accounts. He says, now I want you to know, dear brothers and sisters, what God in his kindness has done through the churches in Macedonia. They are being tested by many troubles, and they are very poor, but they are also filled with abundant joy, which has overflowed in rich generosity, for I can testify that they have gave not only what they could afford, but far more, and they did it for their, from their own free will. They begged us again and again for the privilege of sharing in the gift for the believers in Jerusalem. They even did more than we had hoped for their first action was to give themselves to the Lord and to us, just as God wanted them to. Which begs the question, how could people living in poverty give so generously? How do you give when you live paycheck to paycheck? The answer is they didn't see poverty as an exemption from giving. The people of Macedonia simply refused to miss out on the satisfaction and the blessing that giving sacrificially brought. The third thing is to give joyfully. Have you ever wondered why the Bible says God loves a cheerful giver? Looked at that with some skepticism? Joyful giving is a sign that the giver understands the owner-manager relationship. It truly is. Cheerful giving can only come when a heart is focused on things above and not on earthly things. For God loves a person who gives cheerfully. Such such givers are investing in the kingdom of God and the restoration of paradise, which, which reaps eternal dividends. And here's, here's what it all boils down to, friends. Here's the bottom line. We give because everything is God's to begin with. 
Everything is God's to begin with. Scripture teaches us that we are to give abundantly and we are to give sacrificially and we are to give joyfully. And God will hold us accountable for all that we do with what we call ours in this life. Because in fact, in reality, it is all his. My prayer for us today is that we will do all that we can with what we've been called to manage with great care. That we would do what we can for God with what he has entrusted to us. Let's pray together. Holy God, all that we have is yours. For the abundance of your goodness, from the abundance of your goodness, Lord, we have been entrusted with your wealth in this world. Work in our hearts and lives so that we bring honor and glory to you through that which is already yours. We thank you for trusting us with so much. We ask for your guidance as we seek to live out your will with your wealth. It's in the name of Jesus, your Son, our Savior, that we pray. Amen.